Today's scripture is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I, will, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which may be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I dreaded the day that we would move out of that house. Uh, when I was in first grade, we lived in a suburb of Columbus, Ohio, and um, it wasn't that the home itself was that great uh, or that we had, I had a lot of great memories there. I honestly don't even remember it that much. But I lived in fear of the day that we would move out. When I was a kid, I was, uh, I was a really picky eater. And uh, that created problems because my mom would serve me things that I didn't want to eat. So what do you do? Well, you don't eat it, obviously. If you're like me, you sneak it into your napkin and then find an excuse to get away from the table. But now you've got another problem. What do you do with the food that you didn't want to eat? Uh, you can't throw it in the trash because mom will find it. Uh, you can't get rid of it down the toilet because, you know, there's maybe more then you could get away with flushing. You know, five or six flushes kind of makes people suspicious. So if you're like me, you hide it behind the china cabinet in the living room. <laughs> yeah. So I would take the, you know, pieces of hot dog or broccoli or onions or tomatoes or cream corn or whatever, and I would tuck it away in the living room, on the carpet, behind the china cabinet, where it sat for a year or more, out of sight, out of mind, problem solved, until my parents said, we're moving. And then the dread and the fear rises to the surface. I made things worse, not just by disobeying my parents in the first place, but I had to lie to them about having disobeyed them. Then I had to lie again to cover up that lie. 
and the more dishonest I was, the worse I kept making things. I, I lived with this anxiety and this dread, and, and of course it affected my relationship with my entire family. I mean, the, this fear of my parents finding out, so I, I didn't really feel safe around them, and of course I definitely didn't feel safe around my brothers, because if they ever found out, I mean, two older brothers, man, would they love to have something like that to tell. It messed everything up. I knew my parents weren't wrong to give me broccoli, and I didn't want punishment for not eating it, so I, you know, I, I tried to hide my sin and cover it up. And it just spiraled from there and made everything worse. Ever been there? I, I mean, hopefully not that literally, uh, with you know, the food behind the china cabinet, but ever been in a situation like that where there was just something wasn't right, you knew it wasn't right, you knew what you were doing wasn't right, you're guilty, you didn't want to own it. Did you ever think about what that does to us? Uh, that, you know, the hiding the truth. I mean, here, here's just a couple of things that came to me. Hiding the truth, it, I mean, for me, it destroyed my confidence, right? Because I just lived in fear and anxiety all the time. I, I was, you know, especially when the news came out about us moving, I was just waiting because I knew. I knew I was going to be found out. And, and so I had no peace, I had no confidence in, in my relationships. Ironically, if you think about it, sometimes when we think that we're doing well, that can give us another kind of bad confidence because we put our confidence in what we're doing. Like my brothers maybe could have been confident, like, man, I'm glad I'm not in his shoes. I'm doing a much better job than him. And it still gives us the wrong kind of confidence in ourselves. That's what dishonesty does. It destroys our confidence, and, and it damages our relationships. I, I couldn't be real and honest with my parents. I was ill at ease. That's what happens when we have unconfessed sins and messes in our lives, right? You, you find yourself sometimes, you feel bad about yourself, and so then you end up taking it out on other people. You get angry, you get impatient with other people because you're really feeling bad about you and this thing that's beneath the surface. And so then you become snappish and judgmental towards other people. Or, you know, someone has hurt us or we know we've hurt someone and, and so we withdraw because we haven't dealt with it. It's unresolved. Dishonesty ruins our relationships, and, and it delays our growth, too, because we're stuck doing the same thing over and over again. We've, we've never dealt with it, and so nothing's been resolved. It could be something you did or something somebody said or did to you. But uh, somebody said once, worry can't change the future, and guilt can't change the past, but they can both make us miserable in the present. And that's what not being honest, that's what hiding the truth does. It delays our growth. It keeps us stuck. We're reliving the things that we need to move past because we've never really dealt with it and we don't become the person that God wants us to be. And, and maybe all of us know to some extent these realities. Maybe some of you have come here this morning weighted down with unforgiveness or bitterness or 
anger or resentment or jealousy. Maybe you're weighed down with guilt or shame over something you're struggling with or, or something you did years ago that, that just keeps coming back to you and, and it gives you no peace. Now, it's true that we can struggle with a false sense of guilt, but really I think our bigger problem is much more that we don't really take our sins seriously enough. We don't really see it for what it is and deal with it appropriately. So, so what do we do? What do you do when you realize you're not being honest with yourself or with God? Where, where do you go when it feels like your, your heart or your life has more ups and downs in the stock market? Or there's just something that you know is there and you don't know what to do with it? Well, if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to Psalm 32. If you're using that black Bible in the seat underneath in front of you, we're on page 546. Uh, we're told at the beginning this is a, a maskil, some kind of a musical form, ascribed to David, this king of Israel who loved the Lord and yet was also a great sinner who needed God's forgiveness. And the particular sin that David is talking about here is not specified for us, which I, I think is intentional because there were plenty to choose from. And also then it allows us to see ourselves here because it's not a specific sin, it's just sin. And this psalm then ends up serving as a model for confession and assurance that we need and that we practice together. That's what we're doing in this series about transformation. We, we wanna understand the forms that we use in worship and why they matter and what God intends to do in us as, as his people. And today we want to look at what does it mean to confess and why do we do it and what's the assurance that we know as we take those sins to God. So we want to look at three things that David points out here in this sermon, if you want to follow along, in this passage, I mean. First, David is saying to really deal with the brokenness in us, we have to recognize the heaviness of our sin, the heaviness of it. David gives this threefold description or, or picture of what's wrong with us. Transgression, sin, iniquity. And those have different meanings, but they're all kind of connected. Transgression means overstepping a line. It, it means rebellion. I, I just don't want to do what I need to do or what God's told me to. And I just say, no, I'm going to go my way. Sin is this picture of uh, missing the mark, of falling short, of not being what we ought to be, not measuring up. And then iniquity is a, is a picture of kind of a, a crookedness, a, a twistedness. It's the same word that's used to describe like a, a gnarled tree branch. There's something deformed and wrong in us. Not just that we do sin, but that there's something in us that leads us to sin. And, and all of those descriptions are meant to lead us to, to see the breadth and the depth of what's wrong with us. It's not just something that we can put off as one little thing over here, or, oh, you know, I just had a bad moment. 
I mean, I think David is wanting us to see that the things that we think of as little sins are just as significant as the things that we think of as big ones, but because they're all in view here. Look at what it does to us in verse 3. When I kept silent, when I was not honest about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. David's remembering times when he had hidden a mess behind the china cabinet in the living room. And he just wanted to pretend it wasn't there. And he said, my bones wasted away. I was in agony inside. This groaning is a word that's used to describe an animal crying out in pain, like a wounded beast. Do you get the picture here? Sometimes when we're dishonest with God, even God, even our bodies revolt. Instead of happiness, we experience heartache, ulcers, hypertension, migraines, heaviness. David is suggesting that sometimes that's because we're hiding something. And, and he goes on in verse 4 to say, Day and night, your hand, O Lord, God's hand, was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. So he's saying there's not just the natural consequences of sin, you know, broken relationships and ruined reputations and financial messes and maybe jail time. He's saying God is actively involved in, in bringing this heaviness on him. God is pressing down on David to, to make him unhappy because he loves us. Yeah, that's actually right. God loves us too much to let us be comfortable in our sin. And so he graciously presses down and brings discomfort and disease to wake us up. Thank God that he brings conviction and pain and discomfort. It means your conscience is still alive and that you care about right and wrong and good and evil. That's a good thing. But the only thing that will bring relief is not more medication or therapy, but what David talks about here as we go on, confession. But the problem is it's not easy for us to confess because maybe we don't see our sin as ugly and destructive and disgusting as David's trying to help us see it here. You know, the, the, the parallel psalm to this of David's confession, Psalm 51, is where David says, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He calls sin evil. I mean, I, we don't hear that. We don't maybe think of our sin often enough like that. It's not just a lapse. It's not just I had a bad moment. It's not just, oh, I let my guard down. It's not a mistake, not a failure. David says it's evil. Cornelius Plantinga puts it this way. Sin is like garbage. You don't want to let it build up. Confessing sin is like taking out the garbage. Because when I see my sin like that, when I see it as 
offensive and evil and rotten, that's when I do what David encourages us to do back in Psalm 32 and verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Instead of concealing, David is now confessing. He is agreeing with God about the nature of his sin. That's what confession means. It means to acknowledge it, to own it, and to agree with God about what it really is. David doesn't try to diminish it. He doesn't try to downplay it. He doesn't try to blame it on other people. He takes ownership of it because notice the personal pronouns there. My sin, my iniquity, my transgression. Man, there's a part of me that loves to confess other people's sins. Like, God, let me tell you what they did wrong and how you need to straighten them out. David is saying, I confess my sin to you. And he doesn't deny it or minimize it or talk about it in soft language. You know, maybe instead of saying, I stretch the truth a little. We should just say, I was afraid and I lied to protect myself. Maybe instead of saying, you know, you caught me at a bad moment, just say, I was impatient and I got sinfully angry and I wronged you. Maybe instead of saying, you know, oh, I need to share a prayer request with you, just say, I want to pass along some gossip about somebody. Because that's what sometimes those prayer requests are. See, it's hard for us to be honest because our pride hates being humbled like that. And it's scary to name the things that are within it. I think that's why after David lists all of this, there's this selah there, which you either read out loud or not, but it, we don't know exactly what it means, but the best understanding is it's meant to be a pause. It's meant to say, stop, don't run past this, pay attention, and think about what we've just heard. We need pauses like that so that we don't miss what God is saying to us, especially here about the heaviness, the ugliness of what's inside of us because freedom and joy really only comes through honesty and deep joy comes through deep honesty. Can we admit that we struggle with unrighteous anger, sexual brokenness, addictions, racism that that we don't even want to talk about, Greed, impatience, self-righteousness. I'm going to let us take some time right now. And let's invite God to help us see and name those things in us. That even though we've talked to God about before, maybe it's just hard for us to be honest. Let's ask God to help us be honest. Let's take some time to do that.
See, as hard as it is sometimes for us to confess, to, to be honest with ourselves about the reality of what's inside, we long for it. We long to bring it out in the open and, and, and to know that there's somebody, somebody who knows the worst about us and will still love and accept us because that's what we were made for. And, and that's what David leads us to through this confession. That's, that's the goal of it. Look at what David goes on to point out, that the happiness of forgiveness, that's the good news that David wants us to know. We need to remember the happiness of God's forgiveness. Look back in verses one and two. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's not like a single word in English that, that we can use to convey the, the breadth of this word that we translate blessed. It, it kind of it means happiness or, or joy or how fortunate, how good for that person. And in the Hebrew, it's, it's pluralized. So David's kind of saying, oh, the, the multiple joy, the, the deep overflowing happiness of the person whose sin is forgiven. We saw how David, remember, gives this uh, threefold description of sin, and now look how he matches that with a trio of words picturing what God does as we confess. Transgressions are forgiven. That, that means to have the weight taken off. The burden is removed. As we confess, there, there's a lightness that comes to our spirits. Our sins are covered, he says. That means they're no longer brought to the surface. They're, they're put away, they're gone, they're, they're removed and not brought to mind anymore. And then he says that the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, that counts there is where we get the idea of reckoning or accounting or imputing God places our sin debt on a substitute and then counts the righteousness, the holiness of that substitute to us. Now, for David in the Old Testament, it was the sacrificial system and that, that spotless lamb that had to be offered up. And, and now we look all the more to the cross where we see the lamb of God, Jesus, God's own son, who has come to take the sins for all who will trust in him, once and for all. No wonder that David talks about the multiple blessings of forgiveness that God gives to us. God takes our sin on himself, bears the cost, and then instead gives us his righteousness. And, and maybe we have such a hard time believing it because we don't live in a world like that. That is not the way this world operates. And so we have a hard time maybe letting go of our sin or believing that our sin has been taken care of. But listen to what John writes in his first letter. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. But see, when we know the love of God for us in Christ, we don't fear punishment and judgment anymore. 
And that's what makes it safe for us to be honest. God's perfect love for us casts out fear. When I was hiding that mess behind the china cabinet in the living room, I didn't have any peace. And I certainly had fear. Fear of judgment and punishment. And, and eventually the truth came out when my parents said we were going to move. And they discovered, a, I mean, pardon being graphic, but a disgusting pile of half-rotted food that had eaten through the carpet so that it had to be replaced. Right? I was embarrassed. I was scared. I was humiliated. And yet there was still a part of me that finally this has come to light. And, and now we can deal with it. Of course, my parents were upset. They were disappointed in me. And there were consequences as a result of that. But there were consequences for them too. Because see, they had to be willing to forgive me, which means to be willing to bear the cost for someone else's sin. That's what forgiveness means. To not make the other person pay what their sin deserves. Because that's what God has done for us in Christ. And that's what we do for one another. My parents took the cost of my sin on themselves in having to replace the carpet. And then, of course, they had to reassure me that they still loved me and I was still part of the family, even though there were consequences. And I would have done better, though, to obey them in the first place or at least to have been honest with them about what I had done. Do you see the echo of God's love here? That he assures us of his love for us in Christ and his forgiveness, and that brings freedom, it brings joy, it brings peace. And the problem is, not being honest with God about that sin and that brokenness blocks the flow of those blessings in our lives that God wants us to experience. You see, in the last part of verse 2, David says all these blessings, multiple blessings, come to the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, hear what that means. It does not mean the person who never tells a lie and the person who always obeys. Then, then there would be no hope for any of us, and what's the point of even having this psalm? The one in whose spirit is no deceit means the person who is willing to be honest with God about his or her sins and failures and messes. It means simply telling the truth and confessing. Blessed is the one who confesses. Because being a Christian is not about our holiness, but about our honesty and our humility. And that's the place where God now can start to work in us to make us more holy and make us look more like his son. That's why we need confession and we need to hear God's assurance every week because we need to take the garbage out. We need to be honest and we need to be reminded of the deep, profound blessing of being honest and being reminded of God's forgiveness and grace. And then thirdly, quickly, David says, then we rest in the help of God. After 
calling us to recognize the heaviness of our sin and remember the happiness of blessing in God. We rely on his help. Look what David goes on to say in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time where you may be found. For surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You, Lord, are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David is talking about God's protection here. The blessing of God's help as he protects us. David, again, is urging those who are godly to pray. It doesn't mean those who are super holy and super spiritual, but it means those who want what God wants. That's what it means to be godly, to be honest, and to seek God. There's a sense of urgency here. Call on God at a time when he may be found. Pray now. David is saying, don't wait, don't put it off, don't tell yourself, ah, it's not that serious, I'll, I'll wait. Because David is saying, there very, may well be a rush of great waters. There, there may be trouble on the horizon. But for those who trust in the Lord and are honest with him, God surrounds, God protects, God preserves us. Because you see, you notice at the beginning of the psalm, David is hiding from God. And now he's hiding in God, which comes from being honest and trusting in him. And as we do that, God says, I will guard you. I will preserve you. It doesn't mean there won't be trouble, but I will preserve you in the trouble, and it will not destroy you. Those who cling to Jesus and confess their sins do not fear God's wrath or judgment now or to come. And then protection is great, but I know how liable I am to keep wandering and getting lost. I need God's direction too. And that's what David also says is a blessing that God gives us. And in the voice that uh, may have been sort of a, a priestly instruction here, Someone speaking on behalf of God, the Lord says to his people, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like the horse or the mule without understanding. They have to be curbed with a bit and a bridle or, or they won't stay near you. What good would it be if God saved me if he doesn't help me so that I don't keep having to fall into the pit and being saved? We, we need his direction and he says so don't be stubborn and hard-headed like a mule. It's a picture of, you know, the farmer going out into the field, and there's a storm coming or danger, and he's trying to get the animals into the barn, and the mule doesn't want to go. And so the farmer has to put a bit and a bridle in his mouth and hook him to the pickup truck and drag him against his will into safety. But back to the earlier verses, there's the warning, you know, if you keep resisting and holding God off and you stay out in the field because you're trusting your own wisdom, well, there may be great waters and trouble that come because of your mulishness. God is saying, don't be like that. I, I want to lead you in a good way. So it really raises the question for me, do I really believe that God's commands are for my good? 
God doesn't give me direction and instruction to be a killjoy or, you know, to say, no, don't do that because, you know, I, I don't like that. Do I really believe that God guides and directs me because he wants what is ultimately best for me? That he knows. He knows better than I do. Because if I believe that, then I will be quick to listen when he tells me where to go. And then that leads to a celebration at the end of this psalm. You know, there's an irony here. Confession feels like death to our proud spirits, doesn't it? When they find out, when it comes to the surface, if, if they know that, I don't know what's going to happen. And yet, ironically, even though it's humbling and scary, our hearts long, our hearts long for a love that will know us deeply and never let us go. And that's who God is for us in Jesus Christ. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love, faithful, unbreakable, unchanging love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. There's nothing that you can tell him, there's nothing that you have done that he doesn't already know about and that Jesus has not paid for. So be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Oh, righteous, yes, you are righteous in Christ. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. See, owning our sins to a God who promises to never leave us or forsake us brings joy and confidence. That's what he wants for us. So that then we can't help but praise him. You know, it's a reasonable question. If Jesus has already paid for all our sins, why confess them? We're not coming, him to, coming to him to get God to forgive us because he's already forgiven us, right? It's, no, it's speaking the truth to ourselves and to one another about who we are and who God is and reminding ourselves. Listen to what James Smith says in his book, You Are What You Love. To be called to confession week after week is to be reminded of a crucial chapter of the gospel story. When we remove that confession, we take away an important aspect of the gospel that pushes back on secular liturgies of self-confidence. Because all week long, we are implicitly taught, believe in yourself. It's a false gospel of self-assertion that refuses grace. Confession is crucial for reforming our loves, reforming our hearts. See, David is talking about his sins here, but we talk about the Psalms as the hymn book of the Old Testament. This is for public expression. We come together as God's people, as a community, to speak the truth about ourselves, to confess our sins, our brokenness, and our need, because we need a community where we can be honest I think that's what was so attractive about uh, this obituary that I ran across recently uh, that a man wrote for himself. Ken Fuson, born June 23rd, 1956, died January 3rd, 2020, is stunned to learn that the world is somehow able to go on without him. 
Ken decided early on that he wanted to be a newspaper reporter, and he attended the University of Missouri's famous school of journalism, which is a clever way of saying almost graduated but didn't. In 1981, Ken landed a dream job working for the Des Moines Register. In 96, Ken took the principled sand of leaving the register for the Sun in Baltimore because they offered him more money. Three years later, having blown most of that money at Pimlico Racetrack, he returned to the register where he remained until 2008. In his newspaper work, Ken won several national feature writing awards. No, he did not win a Pulitzer Prize, but give him a break, he's dead. Ken became a freelance writer in 2008, and some would suggest that going out on your own in the midst of the greatest recession since the Great Depression was not a wise choice, but Ken was never one to be guided by wisdom. He wrote the book Heading for Home about the 1991 Norway-Iowa baseball team that won the state championship. Many good copies are still available. He was diagnosed with liver disease at the beginning of 2019, which is pretty ironic given how little he drank. Eat your fruits and vegetables, kids. He is survived by his sons, Jesse and Max, and his stepson, Jared, who all brought Ken unsurpassed joy. He hopes that they will forgive him for not making the point more often. He loved his boys and was extraordinarily proud to be their father. For most of his life, Ken suffered from a compulsive gambling addiction that nearly destroyed him. But church friends and the loving people at Gamblers Anonymous never gave up on him. Ken last placed the bed in September of 2009. Miracles abound. He hopes that anyone who needs help will seek it, which is hard, and accept it, which is harder. Skepticism may be cool, and for too many years Ken embraced it, but it was faith in Jesus Christ that transformed his life. It was the one thing he never regretted. It changed everything. For many years, Ken was a member of the First United Methodist Church in Indianola and sang in the choir, which was a neat trick considering he couldn't read a note of music. The choir members will never know how much they helped him. He later joined the Lutheran Church of Hope. If you want to know what God's love is like, walk in those doors. Seriously, right now, we'll wait. Ken had many character flaws. If he still owes you money, he's sincerely sorry. But he liked to think that he had a good sense of humor and compassion for others. He prided himself on letting other drivers cut in line. He would give you the shirt off his back, even with the ever-present food stains on it. Thank goodness no one ever asked. Yes, this obituary is probably too long. Ken always wrote too long. God is good. Embrace every moment, even the bad ones. See you in heaven. Ken promises to let you cut in line. Could we be a community like that? Where it's safe to confess gambling addictions, failed marriages, bad singing, greed, foolishness. Many of us have dragged around a weight of sin for far too long. Some of you came into church today with bitterness or jealousy or anger or resentment or pride, impatience, self-righteousness unforgiveness. Thank God if it's eating you up. But you don't have to let it eat you up any longer. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to the Lord at a time where he may be found. Today is the day.
Today is the day. Don't put it off. Don't diminish it, dismiss it, dismiss it. Tell it it's not that, tell yourself it's not that big of a deal. God wants to deal with it, to give you his freedom, his forgiveness, his joy, his peace, his hope. Jesus has already paid for your sin so that any who would trust in him could know his forgiveness in life. So whether you've known Jesus for years, whether you've never come to the point of acknowledging honestly your sin and your brokenness and your need, today God wants you to come to him. And to know that if you confess and repent, you are forgiven. And now God can get about the work of freeing you to become everything that you were intended to be. God leads us into confession, not to beat us up, not to make us feel bad, but to free us and to make us whole and new and alive in him. And the church is a community where it has to be safe for us to be broken and messed up and in process. Is it safe for people to be broken around you? The only way that God can glorify his name and make us happy in him is not just to overlook sin, but to change sinners. To give us himself. That's what he wants. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time where you may be found. If you hear his voice, don't wait. Come to him today. We'll have people after the worship service up front who would love to pray with you, love to talk to you, love to help you know God's forgiveness and healing and freedom. Be honest with yourself and with God and know his forgiveness and his peace. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you lead us to be a community where it's safe to be broken and honest and in process. Thank you that you reshape us, you reparent us through this gospel. You don't mostly give us verses to claim or rules to obey, but you come to us as a father to know and love and trust. And we're grateful. Father, thank you for understanding our struggles, our fears, our failures, our sins. We don't have to spin. We don't have to pretend. Oh, Father, have mercy on us and help us, help us to be honest so that we can know your life and your peace and we can rejoice in you. We pray in Jesus' name.